The church needs to either judge with Jesus or will be judged by Jesus. morning. Good morning. You can hear me all right. Everyone in the front, in the back, in the back room. Good morning. Let me again uh, wish you all a happy new year. Happy 2022. It's a joy to be able to gather today, uh, this first Sunday of this new year. It's a joy to be able to gather whether you're uh, with a newborn or selling birthdays or, or newly married. It's just a joy to gather together uh, to worship the Lord together. And as we celebrate the beginning of 2022, we look back at 2021 and, and we see the, the difficulties that the Lord has remained faithful. Uh, we can be thankful that even though time continues to pass forward, the word of the Lord doesn't change, that he is eternal and he is an unchanging God. My name is Peter uh, and my wife and I are members here at WSBC. And so it's my privilege today, and my honor to bring you the Lord's word this morning. In the month of December, we kind of took a break from our studies of Corinthians, and we heard some Christmas-focused sermons from Matthew, from Isaiah, from Galatians. And so as we begin this new year, we're going to go back to study from 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Church of Corinth. And it's an exciting year because we'll be having a few other different series start as well as our elders will lead and teach from different books of the Bible. And so personally, our family is grateful for just the, the care and the support by many members of our church and community here, especially in the past few weeks. We're able to rejoice together as a church for the Lord's blessing of our third child. And my wife and I are currently still in the very first phase of welcoming a newborn back to our home, which is the phase of, of joyful sleep deprivation. And so in many travels to see the doctor, to obtain visas, apply for visas, and, and later for visa uh, passports and all that stuff. We've had to rely a lot on DD Tushing. And so on one trip back from the hospital, our driver was pulling into our neighborhood. And so you have to do a right turn. And then when he was pulling in, he's taking it very slow to make sure, and deliberately to make sure that, that everyone knew that he was pulling in. Well, a woman was on her scooter and she wasn't paying attention for some reason. And so she hits the side of our van. And so in this case, the driver, again, he did it deliberately. He did it to show that he was turning to allow for those in the bike lane to see and to slow down. And so you know what happens after any accident like this. There's this dance where there's, there's negotiation and arguing and, and, and talking about that. Uh, and we actually didn't stay in the van, so we didn't get to witness that. But it did remind us of another similar situation on that same exact location where we were opening the car door and getting out and then at the same exact time, food delivery scooter was going by, and so we actually knocked him off of his scooter. And so in that instance, the local police had to be called, the local law enforcement came, and they had to come to make a judgment and, and, and come up with a verdict of, for who was at fault and for how much the concession was going to be, how much we had to pay to settle the incident. And so it wasn't exactly a courtroom setting, but it did require an officer to come in to make a judgment and then to reach a final decision on what had just happened. And so in both these cases, judgment had to happen. In both these cases, they needed to resolve the con of this accident, of this incident. And so as we look today in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
we will be looking specifically at verses 1 through 11. And Paul here is writing about lawsuits that were occurring within the church. He was responding to how many members of the Corinthian church were bringing internal disagreements and matters that were between members outside of the church in order to pursue legal judgment from unbelieving leaders. This section directly addresses the lawsuits that were happening between the believers in the church, and today's uh, sermon could be summarized by this statement. The church needs to either judge with Jesus or will be judged by Jesus. So we need to either judge with him or we'll be judged by Jesus. When conflicts arise in the church, do we judge the way that Jesus has taught us? And so we'll be looking at today's scripture in two main points. And I like to use alliteration, so it'll be two J words. So it'll be judgment, the first point, and then justice. Judgment will be from verses 1 through 8, and then we'll be talking about justice in verses 9 to 11. And as we consider God's judgment and justice, we'll also look at justification that we can obtain only through Jesus Christ. It's my hope and prayer today that as we study through this passage, as a church, we examine how we are to love and care for one another in the church, especially when conflicts arise, and not do it by our own strength, but because we know that Jesus has sanctified us. And if we don't submit to him, and rather we rely on our worldly wisdom and judgment, we will eventually come before him and be judged by him. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of our Lord. Let's look together now at the first point of judgment as we look at verses 1 through 8. Like any group of people, there were sinners. They were sinners. And so the Corinthian church would have internal conflicts and issues. Every church is going to experience these issues. As long as there are people in the church, there will exist sin and the potential for conflicts and disagreements, no matter how big or how small the church, no matter what country or what citizenship the church members are part of. In this part of the letter, Paul addresses that some of the members have wronged each other, and he's specifically pointing out the fact and emphasizing on how 
they have handled these conflicts. From what Paul states in these verses, we can see how to wrongly handle a conflict within the church, but then we should also reflect on how we should approach resolving these conflicts within the church. As a church, as members of a church, we need to see and observe these patterns, and we need to learn about four key points about resolving conflict. And so the first key point that he notices here is avoidance. Avoidance. And so when conflicts come up, rather than addressing each other or even bringing up these problems in church, the members of the Corinthian church instead have resorted to avoiding, to taking these matters to local law makers and to magistrates. Is this wrong? Well, it is in this case because it didn't seem that they would first confront each other or even involve other more mature members of the church and church leaders and elders to be a part of that resolution. Paul's tone throughout this portion of the letter is one of disbelief and of irony. Verse 1, he states, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? He's not shocked, again, that there's grievances that occur, but he's shocked, rather, that the members of the church resort to legal methods of solving these grievances. And so when conflicts come up within a church, it seems that some of them avoided this direct confrontation and would prefer just to bring it to the law and legal proceedings rather than addressing it and seeking to resolve these problems in church. I do want to point out that the kind of cases that Paul is referring to here are civil cases. They're not criminal. The word grievance here and other translations could be of dispute. So they're personal conflicts between members of the church, between brothers and sisters. And so when these issues arise in the Corinthian church, the members will bring these issues straight to the court, and they'll bring it to the unbelieving magistrates and the leaders that may they themselves be unjust in their judgments. And so they didn't seek to resolve these issues within the church and within the church leaders and elders. The problem with this is that they would rather find their own definition of closure or just some impersonal judgment of a magistrate. They prefer that over the personal connection and the relationships that had to be restored and the relationships that should already exist in a healthy church that allows for members to come together and discuss and resolve these kind of matters. Paul here uses the word unrighteous to point out the difference between those that were not justified before God or those that are not saved. He uses here this term unrighteous more in the religious sense, not as in those judges were moral or immoral. And so it may be even that some of these cases did involve some personal property or some money, as Paul later uses the word fraud in this section. And so these are civil cases. These are problems that arise within the church, inter-church conflict and disputes. But what happens when there are criminal cases in the church, when there is actually criminal wrong? And so we use the word criminal here, again, to sense of, of what the world defines as a crime. And so as far as criminal cases are concerned within the church, then these are not referenced here. Paul does address them in Romans 13, verses 1 to 5, to show that when criminal cases do occur within the church, how there are governing authorities that have been instituted by God, that have been set and appointed by God, and that we are subject to God ultimately, but then in addition, we're subject to these authorities when dealing with criminal cases. And so when the start of the new year, there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of expectation we hope for improved job situations. We hope for lifestyle changes. We hope for improved relationships. And sometimes we hope to improve in certain areas as well. We want to learn a new skill, or we want to uh, learn something new, or maybe we want to grow in our patience. 
And so I'd like to challenge us as a church that we have a duty and a responsibility to be honest with each other. This is an important lesson for all healthy churches to know how to approach conflicts in order to glorify God and how we handle these and resolve these conflicts. And so make a resolution to be more honest and more genuine in your relationship with brothers and sisters. Addressing conflicts isn't just one-sided. It actually gives opportunity for both sides of the issue to grow. And so let's not make the first mistake that the Corinthian church does here of avoidance and being indirect in our communication and our conflicts. The second key point that we can draw in this section is authority. Or rather here, it's more of a misplaced authority. And so this is where the Corinthians are seeking their authority for handling these matters. Likewise, authority can also talk about how church is given authority, the saints are given authority from Jesus, and that we have authority over eternal matters, so much that we should be able to be equipped and make judgment on these smaller, trivial matters. Let's look again at verses 2 to 4. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Again, Paul here is beside himself as he's writing this. He's like a parent trying to help a child understand He's trying to understand their child's continued disobedience. And so he continues to ask, why? Why are you doing this? Why do you bring this to the unbelievers? Did you not know? And he continues this barrage of rhetorical questions for the church to consider, and he allows for the Spirit to use these questions to convict. And so the problem with the authority here is that the Corinthian church has wrongly given this jurisdiction. They've wrongly given this authority to decide and judge on personal church matters. And so they've given it to those people that are not even inside of the church. In verse 4, Paul refers to those people who have no standing in the church. So again, the issue at hand isn't that there's problems happening, but that the Corinthians were seeking to those to make a judgment, to those that are outside of the church. They do not have the same values. They do not have the same beliefs as those inside the church. And they're relying on them to make that judgment. Since there's this gap between values and beliefs, how can they be the ones to decide on disagreements between a brother and a sister or between brothers? These rulers and magistrates are relying only on what they have obtained in worldly wisdom, which you remember is something that Paul continues to emphasize and he continues to drill earlier in this letter to the Corinthians, that they should be relying on the wisdom of the Lord rather than relying on the wisdom of the world. For example, if there's an argument in my family if my daughters have a conflict, if they have a fight, then it would make the most reasonable sense that the person that needs to judge and resolve that conflict would be either me or my wife. People that have standing within our family, people that share the same values in our family. It wouldn't make sense that if one sister hurt the feelings of another sister, that we would just go straight to the local police station and have them mediate this argument. This is what Paul is saying here. How silly is it to bring this matter to the government, to the local law. In contrast with this misplaced authority on local governing officials over church membership matters, Paul also then talks about the authority that is given to the saints through Jesus Christ. In verse 2, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? The saints are the ones that will judge the world at the coming of Christ. And so therefore, they are better to pronounce judgment over disputes of believers before he returns. Paul is referencing here, of course, to the fact that the church, the people of God, will be invited to participate with Christ in the final day of judgment. Matthew 19, verse 28 states, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And also Jesus says this later in Revelation 3, verse 21, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. This honor that Jesus has given to the saints to make this judgment over eternal matters means that the saints, the church, will be equipped and able to handle these smaller interpersonal matters and squabbles between brother and brother and sister and sister. To further drive home this point, Paul even takes a step back and he states that the saints will be the ones that will ultimately judge the world and also even to judge angels. That is, we will be the ones that will share in Christ's reign during judgment. Daniel 7, 27 states, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So what does that exactly mean? That the saints will be the ones to judge angels. Do we give them evaluations at that time? Second Peter chapter 2, 9-11 says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So it seems that the church and the saints would be the ones involved in judgment, but it's not that they will be the ones in charge of judging faithful angels, but because we will be part of that final day of judgment, unified as all of the saints in the body that will be sitting with Jesus uh, at his throne, that we would play a role in judging the evil angels, the angels that have fallen. And so the authority over these matters and conflicts should be given to church leaders and other brothers and sisters to arbitrate and judge. Because if these believers that are the ones that will ultimately sit beside Jesus to judge the world and even angels, aren't they qualified now to judge these trivial cases? So to which people are you placing your authority to? Which people are you fearing? Are you more concerned about hanging tighter to the wisdom of the world, about fearing the leaders of this world, or are you more concerned about the wisdom of the Lord? Again, as a church, we celebrate each time that we have new elders appointed and voted in. As a church, we affirm the wisdom, the spiritual maturity of these brothers. And each time we vote on an elder, we hear from Ephesians 4 that these shepherds are a gift to the church from Jesus. So when we're seeking wisdom on disputes, on conflicts, or even just simple misunderstandings, know that the Lord has given us, given our church, these gifts, these elders to equip us his saints, to do the work of his ministry. 
The third key point here, and just the third misstep of the Corinthian church that we, that we see, is their arrogance. And so verses 5 and 6, here it says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Look at this verse. Look at these two verses. What a burn. Paul is giving really strong language to put the Corinthian church in its place because of the arrogance that they've been showing. Earlier in Corinthians, we see the pride of the Corinthian church. We see that they have formed divisions amongst themselves based on the celebrity pastor that they follow and pride in their own wisdom and reliance and value on worldly wisdom rather than wisdom from the Lord. And so here in verse 5, you see that though they are filled with arrogance, the church, because of their adherence to the local legal leaders, Paul here shows that they should actually be filled with shame. They should be ashamed of their behavior because they were not even wise enough to settle a small dispute between those in their congregation. We should think of ourselves, how often are we like the Corinthians? How often do we have our own important issues and disputes in front of us viewing only these as great importance, heavy issues of personal rights or personal offenses that we've suffered, and having blinders that keep us from looking at the bigger picture. Again, Paul here gives them a dose of sarcastic reality. He calls these cases trivial, which when compared from the standpoint of our ultimate and final judgment before Jesus, they do seem rather small. And because the saints, the followers of Jesus, are entrusted to take part in that final judgment, shouldn't they also rely on his wisdom now to settle these smaller disagreements? Working with other people, many times you may have issues or there may be questions. And so they may come to you with these questions or issues that may not be very important or urgent. But for them, that's all that they can focus on and all that they can see. From a larger perspective, it's a fairly small issue. And the worst is when someone writes you an email or they write you a message. And so just the moment they hit send, that they'll kind of walk by your office or your desk and they'll pop in and they'll say, hey, did you read my message yet? And so you barely had time even just to refresh your browser and read it. But because this issue is what's at hand, at what is in front of them, that all they are thinking about is that it should receive the utmost priority and importance. The moment they hit send, it should pop in your mailbox and you should have already read it and be ready with your response. Same is seen here with the Corinthian church, that these smaller matters are all they see and focus on and so they're making these judgments, and judgments here with a lowercase j, but they're neglecting the larger and the final judgment with a capital J. So we focus our attention to that final day of judgment and the ramifications that are going to lead to that final day of judgment. It will really help us put into focus our daily smaller judgments and then how we can resolve them. The fourth and final point uh, that we can observe of how the Corinthian church mishandled these conflict resolution is their attitude. That's the fourth A word. And so their attitude here, or in other words, their motives, their intent of handling conflicts. And I think we often have our own preset definition of our own rights. Many Western nations, we very strongly value our rights. We have so many rights that we need to uphold and protect. And I think that's similar here with the Corinthian church as well. They're outspoken of their own personal rights. But on the flip side, I think sometimes that when we live in this world, we may feel that we fall in the trap that Christians actually need to be kind or meek or gentle, 
but only find that that kind of soft demeanor will be difficult to survive in this kind of world as well. And so being a follower of Christ doesn't necessarily mean that you just be a doormat and be a pushover either. And so like the Corinthians here, I think sometimes in our own twisted justification, we feel that if our rights are infringed, that if we're being stepped on, then somehow we get the right to right those wrongs, that how we do that to justify and that we can use any means that we feel is necessary. And specifically here, Paul is alluding to deceit and fraud in verses 7 to 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Though you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Here it shows us again that due to the fact that they are already resorting to lawsuits, that this step is already considered defeat because they were unable or possibly even unwilling to reach peace with their brother, with their sister. It can even be seen here due to the fact that they were seeking legal repercussions instead of reconciliation. It is a spiritual defeat because of the attitude or the intent of these lawsuits, where they originate from, that they originate from motives of retaliation, of revenge, of hatred, of greed, rather than practicing unselfishness, forgiveness, humility, and love. And then in verse 8, you can see that Paul shows that they're seeking to hurt others rather than to turn the other cheek as Jesus preached. That they more wanted judgment. They wanted the self-perceived fairness rather than forgiveness. And that brothers and sisters in the church may not be reflecting on the body, but rather they were committing sin as a response to when they feel they have been wronged. So what are we to learn about this? How should the body, how should believers resolve conflicts when they inevitably arise? There are always two parties involved, at least in a conflict, the one that has wronged the other and the person who has been wronged. And so verse 8 shows that Paul's statement to the one wronging and verse 7 for the person who has been wronged. First, Paul asks, why not suffer wrong and why not be defrauded? It is far better to lose financially than to lose spiritually. It is far better to experience injustice in this world than to experience God's ultimate judgment against us. Being legally right, being justified, in no way equals being spiritually right. And so what is right in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the magistrates, of the, of the local leaders, is not necessarily going to be right before God. And so we learned this with Jesus' teaching, his principles. Jesus sacrificed himself, and he gave up all of his rights. For he was innocent, and he did nothing to deserve death. But he did it for God's glory and for our good. He taught on conflict resolution from Matthew 18. That the first step of any conflict that we see is to first address this, to not do what the Corinthians did in avoidance, but to address this issue head on with as much graciousness, with as much humility as possible. And to do this in a private setting, in a one-to-one setting, and in a personal way. Even before addressing the conflict, it's good to prayerfully prepare beforehand. If this step is unable to bring reconciliation, then bring another witness, bring another one, and it's best to have an unbiased and mature member of the church to the next discussion. And after this step, if it still does not lead to reconciliation, then, and there's still no repentance, then this is a church issue. This is an issue to bring before the church and before church leadership and church elders. Notice that Paul doesn't say here, why not suffer wrong instead of confronting the problem? 
Instead, he's saying, why not suffer wrong instead of bringing your dispute before unbelievers? And so you can bring this to the church, but not to bring it to the local government, not to bring it to the magistrates. And so if private meetings are unable to resolve these conflicts involving the church and spiritual leaders, these saints should be providing biblical counseling and insight. So there's pressure on the church as well, that each member of the church should be digging into the Lord's word to be ready because we will see conflicts arise and we may be asked for wisdom, for counsel. As we read on about in Matthew 18, we also remember that there are two parties that both have a role in conflict resolution. Either you're the one that's in the uncomfortable position where you have to bring up a conflict or an issue or possibly sin, or you're in the other party, you're the one that's being confronted by other believers in the church about your behavior or your intent or your actions. If it is blatant sin, then we do have a responsibility as a church to rebuke and to correct while being gracious in doing so in order for that person to repent, to grow in Christ-likeness. But likewise, we need to understand that this teaching by Jesus in Matthew 18 also applies to the person that's receiving the rebuke or the instruction as well. If a brother or sister is bringing up a concern or matter with you, how do you respond? Do you realize you've already started the process of the church discipline that Jesus outlines? If a person comes to you to talk to you, they're already trying to listen and adhere to what Jesus has taught about conflict resolution. Many times when we're confronted with this, our pride or our arrogance will get in the way first. Our sinful nature will, will make us get defensive. We try to justify our actions. We try to justify our behavior. We try to justify why we did what we did. And that's because we misinterpret this criticism, this loving act, as a personal attack on our own character, as our own, on, on who we are. But the fact is that this brother or this sister is bringing up this matter to you already means that they took a step of courage. They took a step of faith to approach you, initiate this difficult conversation. That they are loving you by bringing up in hopes that you would grow in your Christ-likeness. So respond. Respond in a receptive way to hear them out, to listen and to hear first before you want to speak about why you did it or to respond with defensive comments. Second, when you receive these concerns, take time to pray, to reflect, to ask the Spirit to reveal to you what biblical truth are they pointing out. Is it something that the Lord is speaking to you from before? And the third thing, a difficult thing to do, is to thank them. You may not come up with an immediate resolution or a conclusion at that very moment, but if you are both members of this church, you have an obligation to reflect on your relationships with the body. As believers, the way that we handle our conflicts can be a strong testimony to unbelievers watching from the outside. Today, as we take communion at the end of the service, contemplate on how we work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in our church. How do we exercise affectionate care and watchfulness in our church? How do we consider the body and pray for the Lord to reveal any hidden motives, any hurts in our church? Instead of hatred, seek humility. Instead of fairness, seek forgiveness. Instead of retaliation, seek reconciliation. And now we'll look at the last big main point of justice in verses 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When we think of justice, we see this list of sins and we see these sinners and think of the holy justice that's going to come to them. We may think possibly that we've been sinned against, that justice will come to protect us, to vindicate us, to save us. But here, Paul lists out clear and obvious sins seen not only at that time in Corinth, but still seen today in present Shanghai, in the present world. These sins characterize all those that will not inherit the kingdom of God those that continue to engage in these sinful conducts. Paul mentions many of the sins as ones that are prevalent in Corinth, but again, we see them today, sexual orientation and being sexually fluid, worshiping idols, prioritizing anything above God, being greedy, getting drunk. But after listing all of these sins, the real kicker is in verse 11 when Paul includes the members of the Corinthian church that they were also once part of this group of unrighteous stewards, and especially that they were also once people that would not inherit the kingdom of God. This truth reminds them that they should not be unloving or uncaring towards these sinners because they were once in their same position. That's exactly who they used to be. We need to read this letter with that same impact that hopefully the Corinthian church result received with when they received the letter, that we were the sexually immoral, we were the idolaters, the adulterers, we were the thieves, greedy, we were the drunkards, revilers, we were the swindlers. This emphasis reminds them and reminds us again of what a change the gospel and grace of God has made in our lives. The blood of Christ washing away sins, justifying only through the suffering and merit of Christ Jesus, and sanctification to the working of the Holy Spirit. Only this makes us righteous in the sight of God, and we are made holy only by the grace of God. Friends, if you have not made a decision yet to follow Jesus, repent and regain your righteousness only through Jesus. No sin is too big that the Lord cannot wash clean again. Because if we choose to remain in sin, not to seek his mercy and justification, then we won't be part of the saints that sit with him on his throne on that final judgment day. We will be at the other end of his judgment and no amount of good work or deeds will be able to save and justify ourselves. And if you are a believer and you're visiting but not yet a member of any local church, think of how you are missing out in this process of sanctification. It's hard work, but you get to do this with other believers and with the Holy Spirit. Justification is God's declaration that a sinner is righteous through the work of Jesus Christ. But sanctification is God's continued transformation of a believer as a whole through the work of the Holy Spirit and the church. As children of God, we should not be only attending on Sundays, but we should be considering membership, being part of a body, covenanting together for your own good and for His glory. We should conclude. We see that on Judgment Day, we can either be seated with Jesus and judging with him, or we will be facing against Jesus and judged by him. 
This fact should impact how we handle this temporary life here, and it should impact our church life until that final judgment day. But as long as we're in a church and a group of believers that are filled with people, there's still going to be sin. We will still see conflicts within our church. These conflicts need to be resolved, even imperfectly resolved, but knowing that we are doing so with a perfect God. The car accidents that occurred needed to be resolved, but because those accidents involved non-believers, they needed the intervention of the law. They needed the intervention of the police to make that final judgment. But as believers in a church, fellow members together, we do not need to bring our disagreements and our conflicts and matters to the local judicial system. When, with church members, we can resolve it within our body that is covenanted together. Paul's words here can allow us to see that even from a broader sense, how members of a church should view conflict resolution and reconciliation within the body, that this process of reconciliation and resolution is a way to love, to care for other members, and to glorify the Lord in doing so. Because ultimately, without the saving grace and sanctification by Jesus Christ, we would be unable to resolve any conflict in our church. Without his justification and acceptance of his grace, we ourselves would be unable to extend any grace on our own to humbly seek reconciliation. And like some of the members of the Corinthian church, we'd only be able to resort to legal measures and courts to make the judgment calls on our disagreements. So as we start this new year, let's start it off in the freedom of the Lord's grace and peace and make a resolution to resolve conflicts and seek unity in our church. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the final judge. Lord, as we celebrate Christmas, of when you came to this world to save, where we await now when you return as the judge. But you are a judge that has already given us a way to be acquitted. You yourself have already willingly received the full extent of God's wrath, and taking the punishment of all of our sins. We praise you. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen.